Oh, that's beautiful. Praise to our great and awesome God. He does stand alone. No one compares, and we can praise and worship him for that today. I do want to make sure everybody knows that uh, you're welcome here today. We're glad that we have this opportunity to gather together, and I know that many of you, of course, are here week by week, and uh, thank you for being here. Some of you might be here for the first time or first time in a long time, so we're glad that you're here as well. And if you are new to us, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to get to know you and just say hello to you after the service. So please stay around for a few minutes and let us do that. And we have a fellowship time with some refreshments in the, um, the room next door here. So we'll be going there in a little while. So we invite you to join us for that. And there should be a, a card in the rack of the pew near you, right in front of you, a little green card. And if you're new, we'd love for you to take a minute and complete that. And just as a way of uh, leaving a record of your visit and so we can get to know you better. So uh, if you do that, please just hand that to one of us or drop it in one of those boxes by the doors. We'd appreciate that very much. We are in Romans chapter 16, so I invite you to join me there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 16. I don't know if any of you watch uh, college basketball or not, but uh, several weeks ago the NCAA basketball tournament was going on. And the University of Iowa women's basketball team started just winning and winning game after game after game. And even if you don't pay attention to sports or basketball, it was kind of hard to miss because it was all over the news, especially here in Iowa. And they didn't stop winning until the championship game when they were beaten by LSU. One Iowa player's name was highlighted and everybody was talking about her, and the, the highlight reels were showing her, and her name is Caitlin Clark. She's from right here in Des Moines. She led the team in scoring. She's an amazing ball handler and playmaker, and Caitlin Clark set records with her statistics, and everybody was talking about Caitlin Clark. She received a lot of attention, and rightfully so, in, in that realm and we might even say that she received glory. On a human level, she received glory for her athletic achievements. To glorify someone is to elevate them, to hold them in high esteem, and to praise them, to say good things about them and, and to them. We do this in our society to... People who are successful, we elevate and celebrate actors and actresses and star athletes and heads of state and singers and, and corporate leaders and anybody that stands out and achieves greatness. We glorify them. Glory is a word used in the Bible of giving God the attention that he is due, of giving him the recognition of which he is worthy and the praise that is due to his name, glorifying God. So to glorify God means to have a high view of him. It means to honor him. It means to elevate him in your thinking and by your life. And it means to praise him verbally, out loud, to say good things about him, to praise him for who he is and what he has done. And here in, in our Bibles, at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, the scriptures show us that we should glorify God, but, but that we should glorify him for something very specific, and that is the gospel. 
Look with me at Romans chapter 16, and I'll read for us starting with verse 25. Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, if you've read much of the Bible, you know about the Apostle Paul, you know that Paul is known for long, complicated sentences, and that's really what this is. But I want us to understand how but what he was saying and how he lays this out for us. And so as he begins in verse 25, he says, now to him. So he's talking about God and he's saying that God should receive something. Now to him. And then he starts describing the gospel. So, so verse 25, verse 26 is, is talking about the gospel. And then at the end of this long sentence in verse 27, he kind of circles back and he says to God. So verse 25, to him. Then he talks about the gospel, and then verse 27, to God, that's the hymn he's talking about, who is alone wise, and then he finishes the thought, be glory, be glory. So a simple way to say this is, give glory to God for the gospel. That's how Paul was signing off in this letter to the Romans in which he had described the gospel. In fact, he wrote this whole letter that we have, the book of Romans, to the Christians in Rome, and it's about the gospel. And we've been looking in the last several weeks at chapters 12 through chapter 16, focusing on how the gospel transforms our relationships with one another and with the people around us in life. It is the gospel that saves us, and the gospel transforms us. It changes us. And, and our response to the gospel is to believe the gospel and to allow ourselves to be changed and then to give God the glory for what he has done in our lives and what he does in the lives of, of others. And Paul celebrated the gospel and he was drawing these Roman Christians into elevating God and honoring God and praising God. And he gives reasons for doing so. In, in these verses, he gives us reasons for glorifying God for the gospel. And that's what we are going to look at this morning. And the first one is, give glory to God for impacting you with the gospel. He says in verse 25, now to him who is able, then he describes the gospel. And in verse 25, he says, he is able to establish you according to my gospel. When Paul says my gospel, he means the gospel that I preach. Not that it originated with him or that he's the author of it, but he's the one who is preaching it. And he says that, that God is able to establish you according to the gospel and that that's a reason to give God glory, to praise him, not only with your lips, but with your life. The gospel is the good news. So we've talked about the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that when you believe in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again, when you trust him to save you, then God gives you his righteousness. 
You no longer have to try to earn acceptance with God because you can't. When you believe in Jesus who died for your sins and rose again, God gives you the gift of his righteousness so now you can be right with God. You're right with God. Now the question is, how does the gospel impact you? Well, he uses this word establish in verse 25. He says that the God is able to establish you according to the gospel. So the gospel has an impact on your life. It establishes you. What does that mean? Well, it has two, two parts. To be established means to be stabilized. It stabilizes you. Life without God is unstable. Without God, you drift aimlessly. Or if you have some kind of direction, some, something that you're pursuing in life, you're, you're actually aiming at the wrong things, right? The gospel stabilizes you, gives you a point of reference, gives you something into which you can anchor. The gospel gives you a reason to get up in the morning. It gives you a foundation for building your life. It gives order to your priorities. It gives you a right standing with God. It stabilizes your life. So when he says that, that the gospel establishes you, he means that it, that it stabilizes you, but it also includes the idea of strengthening you. So the gospel stabilizes you. It also strengthens you. So it gives you this, this purpose for life, but then it also enables you to fulfill it. When you look at living the Christian life, you think, how can I do that? How will I be able to live out my life for God? How can I pursue what honors him rather than what, what, what honors me? How can I overcome my sinful habits? How can I do what's right? Because God strengthens you. He establishes you. God's power is at work in and through you, helping you do what you cannot do by yourself. Once you've believed in the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, in you, strengthening you. You can understand the scriptures, the word of God that guide you. You have other Christians around you, Christian friends who encourage you. You can pray, right? When you're right with God, you can just say, God, I need your help today. I need your help in this situation. I'm being tempted. I need your strength. And you can call on God and he will strengthen you. All of that comes to you through the gospel. He strengthens you in trials, when you're having a hard time, when you're facing difficult things in life, when you have problems. He strengthens you in temptation, when you are facing something that's drawing you into falling back into an old habit or doing what you know is wrong. He strengthens you in those times of temptation. He strengthens you for ministry, to serve the Lord. He strengthens you to share the gospel. Notice the focus in verse 25 is, is not on your ability, but on whose ability. Now to what? Him who is able. That means he has the power and he can infuse you with his power to glorify him. So the gospel impacts you by stabilizing you and by strengthening your life. And what is our response to that? According to Paul, give him glory, right? Glorify God. So, so as you look back over your life, whether it is relatively a relatively short life, if you're a young person, or, or a longer life, if you're an adult and getting older, do you see how God stabilized you through the gospel? 
Can you think of ways that God has strengthened you to live your life for him? Sometimes I think back about my life as a teenager. I was saved when I was a boy. I had trusted Jesus Christ as a young boy, as a teenager. I was pretty, pretty open to the influence of my friends and pretty much lived to please them as well as my own sinful desires. And I think about the influence that my friends had on me and I think about the, the way that, that the world was influencing my life. And sometimes I think about how it could have turned out. I think about the direction my life could have taken at that point and the, just the destructiveness that I would have experienced in my life. And I just give thanks to God. It was, not, it was not me. It was God's grace, God's hand reaching into my life and, and rescuing me from that wrong direction and from those influences. And I give thanks to God for that. I look back at times when I have struggled with temptation and how God rescued me. Times when I have been, been just weighed down with discouragement because of my own, myself or, or things around me, what's happening in life or things in family. And I think how, how God helped me. And I'm thankful as I look back for how the gospel impacted my life. And, and I think I need to glorify him more for that. Right? I need to give thanks to him more. I need to, to talk more about how thankful I am for the impact the gospel has had on my life over the years of my life and in recent days as well. And we should all do that, right? Just be continually glorifying God for the impact of the gospel in our lives. This last week at the college where, where Faith and I teach, uh, there was a young man that I was at, at lunch. I was in the, the lunchroom, and there was a young man sitting across from me at the lunch table, and, and um, he was a junior in high school, and he's thinking about where to go to college. And so we were just talking, just chatting there at lunch, and, and uh, he got saved just a few years ago. He trusted Christ as his Savior, actually during COVID. He said it was a time of uncertainty. A time when I was just, just really unsure about what life was going to be like. And there was some anxiety there. And I didn't get the whole story, but somehow he was exposed to the truth that Jesus died for his sins and rose again. And he put his trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so, so his uncertainty led him to find hope in God and in Jesus Christ during that time. And he said, you know, I'm confused about what to do for college. But he said, I know I don't have to worry about it. I just need to, to focus on living my life to serve the Lord, and God will direct me as to how to do that. Well, that's a great outlook on life for a junior in high school, isn't it? Going from uncertainty, instability, we would say, and uncertainty to having a sense of direction for his life and purpose for his life, even though he did not know exactly what that would look like and how his life would play out. He said, you know what, it's okay. The gospel brought stability to his life. Has the gospel done that for you? If the gospel has impacted your life, do you give him glory? Do you actively praise him? Do you continually thank him? Now, I had the advantage of being able to know what songs we were singing, so I was able to kind of prepare for this, but most of you didn't know what songs we're going to be singing, but I want us to think back for just a minute to one of the songs, the song that we started with, Praise Him, Praise Him. We sang, Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus our blessed, what? Redeemer. 
Redeemer. So when we sing, praise him, praise him, those are familiar words to many of you. Is there a conscious thought, I am glorifying God and Jesus Christ who redeemed me, who who literally paid the price to set me free? That's what that song leads us to do. For our sins, the song says, he suffered and bled and died. He is our rock, our source of stability and strength, our hope of eternal salvation. Hail him. Hail, that's something we say to to a king, right? Hail him, hail him, Jesus the crucified. And those are just a few of the words that we sung a few minutes ago and many of the the words that we sang honor and glorify God and Jesus Christ because of the gospel. So a question for all of us is, are these just familiar words to us? Stand and sing and we open our mouths and they come out almost without thinking. Or, Or are we focusing on, in fact, are we overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness of God and his power shown through the gospel? And how it has impacted your life. When you have opportunity to share your story. Sometimes we'll even say, would anybody like to share with us how you came to know Christ? Or somebody asks you in a conversation, so tell me about your life. And you have an opportunity to speak up and give God thanks for rescuing you from your sins. And from going your own way and bringing you into fellowship with him. You take that opportunity to give him glory. So Paul was emphasizing reasons to glorify God for the gospel, and one of them is how it impacts us because the gospel changes you, it changes your life for good. Another reason that he gives is to give glory to God for the universal availability. The universal, worldwide, right? Available to all, the universal ability Availability, excuse me, the universal availability of the gospel. Look at how Paul described this in verse 25 of Romans 16. He says, establish you according to my gospel and, in verse 25, the preaching of Jesus Christ. What he means there is that the gospel has been published. People spread the good news that Jesus died for sins and rose again. And people can know about it. They started preaching it in the the city of Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead. And and Peter and others just started preaching it. And that, that good news had spread across the known world all the way to Rome. And look, look also in verse 25 where he says, According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. What he's saying here is that, that there was something that people didn't understand previously. This mystery. And it was not just that Jesus would come and that he would die for our sins and be raised again. It was more than that. The mystery he's talking about is the fact that that God would bring together all people who believe in Jesus as their Savior from all nations, all ethnicities, not just the Jewish people whom he did favor, but everybody into this, this new body of people called the church. This, you and me, and the worldwide combined group of people who believe in Jesus called the church. 
So, so, so God had made certain facts known, but it didn't all come together until Jesus rose from the dead and the church was formed. Jesus coming to earth and then the apostles preaching brought God's plan all out into the open. He says in verse 26, it's now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known. So, so the Old Testament prophets, that's what he means by the prophetic scriptures, that the Old Testament spoke of the gospel, even though it wasn't fully understood. But now it, it's complete. The gospel is complete. Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. It's been revealed and it can be known and understood by everyone. As he says in verse 26, to all nations... And even though God did choose to favor the Jewish people and made salvation available to everyone, that that was God's plan from the beginning. And that is certainly God's plan now. So the gospel is available to you. Jesus died for your sins and rose again. You can trust Christ and be saved. You can believe on Jesus and receive him as your savior. Your sins are forgiven. You are assured of a relationship with God and that you will spend eternity with him in heaven forever. That's clear. You can know it. And it's available to everyone. It's not just for you, is it? From the very beginning, God's plan was to spread this good news and make it available to everyone. And the way he describes it here is all the nations. Literally, all of the ethne is the Greek word which is ethnicities, all peoples, all people groups, place, different places, different colors, different languages, everyone, everywhere. You know, we, th we think of missions and supporting missions, and I know this church does support some missionaries with prayer and finances, and that's fantastic. But the truth is, it's not only good to send missionaries but you should think of yourselves as missionaries. You are missionaries. You have a mission. You have a message, which is the gospel, and you have a mission to spread the gospel. How, how is this made known? He says, made known to all nations. In verse 26, you put your finger on that, made known. How is it made known? Well, God has made it known through, through the scriptures, through his word, but it's up to, to you and to me, the, the messengers, the missionaries, to make it known to the people who need to hear it, isn't it? In fact, this is what should be on our minds as we think about our neighbors here in Highland Park. I mean, any Jews and non-Jews alike are included in all the nations, you know, we, we think of who we are and then who's around us, and we think, well, the nations are the ones who are across the seas and speak different languages in other parts of the world, but truly the nations are right around us. Within a quarter mile, within a few blocks of this building right here, aren't they? Hispanic, Asian, people who have immigrated or are refugees from countries like, continents like Africa, countries in Africa. You can walk these streets and you know that the nations are here. They are our neighbors. And so, so the gospel is available for all, but needs to be made known to all. And the question is, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make it known? And that is a very important question for this church looking forward. 
It is a discussion that, that you need to have, not just waiting on somebody to come and show you how or lead the way, but a burden that you need to bear and a discussion that you need to have among yourselves. How are we going to make the gospel known to all the nations that are within a few blocks or a half a mile of where God has strategically and providentially placed you as a church? How are you going to do it? Now, it's not enough for people just to hear the gospel. People have to respond to the gospel, don't they? And we see that response in, in verse 26, where, where he says at the end of the verse, so, so the gospel is, is made manifest, it's made known. God has commanded this, the everlasting God commanded this to happen. And now look at the end of verse 26, for obedience to the faith. So what is the response to the gospel? What is, what is people's response to the good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose again? Well, Again, he gives us two components here that are essential to a response to the gospel. Believing in Jesus Christ, so you see faith, so that's believing in Jesus, and submission to Jesus. Believing in Jesus and submitting to Jesus. The obedience of faith. Now, I want to show you something. Go with me back to the very beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. The end sounds a lot like the beginning. In fact, if you look at the first few verses in Romans chapter 1 and you look at the last few verses in Romans chapter 16 that we're looking at, you can observe some similarities. So look with me at Romans chapter 1, and I'll just start with verse 3. So Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I'm writing to you concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So there you have Jesus came, he was born, he lived, he died for our sins, he rose again. Through him, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship. So Paul's saying, I've received the gift that comes to me through the gospel of salvation, but I've also been given an assignment to preach the gospel and to establish churches. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. You see it? So he's saying this message is for everybody, and their response is described as the obedience, obedience to the faith, obedience to the faith. So, so faith involves trusting Jesus as your Savior, believing in him, but it also involves, the response to the gospel also involves submission to him. And we would say following him, following Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 10. So over in Romans chapter 10. And here in Romans chapter 10, Paul is, is saying that his people, the Jewish people, needed to hear the good news. They needed to hear the gospel. The implication, of course, of course is that, that everyone does. And, uh, and he says, I'll, I'll pick it up in verse 8. So Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Well, what does it say? In other words, what, 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 does, what does God's word say? What is God's message to us? Chapter 10, verse 8. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's telling people how to be saved. 
He's saying they need to hear the message. When they hear the message, here's the response, and that is a verbal confession saying, you know what, I know and I acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. He died for my sins and rose again, and the promise is that you'll be saved. So there's that element of belief and of submission and then look down in verse 16. You'll see he emphasizes this one more time. So Romans chapter 10, verse 16. He says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. So he doesn't just say they've believed. They've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you see obedience and belief in verse 16 linked together, right? Linked together there. And this is important. Because people do need to understand who Jesus is. It's not just about walking up to somebody and saying, hey, do you want to be saved? Pray this prayer. Jesus died for my sins and rose again. I believe in Jesus. Great, you're on your way to heaven. Right? It doesn't work that way. There's an element of understanding who Jesus is and acknowledging he is the Son of God. And it's not that we understand completely all the implications of what it means to obey him and live our lives for him in order to get saved, but there's an element of of acknowledging that he is the Lord and of submitting, bringing our lives into submission to him. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you will submit your life to him as your Lord. And if you look at your life and say, well, I prayed a prayer. I'm believing in Jesus. That's good. But if your life lacks submission to him, if there is no evidence in your life of truly following Jesus as the Lord of your life, then you should look back and examine whether you have truly trusted Christ as your Savior and that your life is changed by him and that you are following him. Your understanding of what it means that Jesus is your Lord will grow. And the degree to which you yield to him will grow. As one writer says, obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. Faith is inseparable from obedience, for the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord. And we can only obey Jesus as Lord when we have given ourselves to him in faith. So that is the response. We don't work in order to be saved. We believe to be saved, but then we live out our lives following and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is universally available. We have a responsibility to make it known, don't we? So you and I have responsibility to make it known to our neighbors, the neighbors around our church, the neighbors that we live next to, co-workers, classmates. And then it's in their court, isn't it? Some will hear and believe and follow Jesus. Glorify God for those who have. Glorify God for the fact that they can. And glorify God for those who will. Uh, as, as Sean introduced the, the song, Behold Our God, and even as you think about the words that we were singing about God creating the vastness of, of the world and the universe, and you think of space, and maybe sometimes you see pictures or even sometimes can look into a, a dark night sky and, and see the, the billions of points of light out there and know that God made those swirling galaxies and you see pictures of 
exploding nebula and, and just the, the, the infinite vastness of space and the, the stunning beauty of what's out there. The, the response to that is just to think, wow, what, a, what a, a great creator God is and to be in awe of him. Well, the gospel is much like that. It's like the spectacular, infinite beauty of the universe. It reflects the wisdom of the designer, doesn't it? The gospel does. And our text includes one more reason for glorifying God for the gospel, and that is to glorify him for designing it. To glorify God for designing the gospel. Notice in verse 27, so we're back in chapter 16 now. Verse 27, so Paul is, is circling back around now, so he starts out now to him. And he describes the gospel and its impact on us, the availability of the gospel. Now in verse 27, he comes back around to God. Alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. To God alone wise. The plan of God, the plan of God for salvation that God designed and is carrying out elevates him to the highest place. He stands alone. When you think about the gospel, when you begin to understand what the gospel is, you realize the one who designed it stands alone. It distinguishes him above and beyond all others because of its infinite wisdom and beauty. The gospel is about the glory of God. There's a scene that we are given a glimpse into the throne room of God. And John describes what's happening there in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. And as, as people are gathered and the, the angelic creatures are there worshiping God in heaven. There's a refrain that goes like this. You are Worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. So we were made to glorify God. God is worthy of glorifying him with our lives. The problem is, we don't do that, do we? In fact, look back again here in the book of Romans at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Starting with verse 21. Romans 3, 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. What that's saying is that God requires us to be 100% right Righteous, obey him completely. God is righteous and he requires perfect righteousness. But, but we cannot fulfill that ourselves. We cannot be righteous on our own. So he gives it to us. He gives us righteousness when we believe in Jesus Christ. It comes to us, as he says here, by faith. Then look at the end of verse, verse 22. For there is no difference. And then verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. The perfection of God. The perfection that characterizes God, but also the perfection that God requires of us. He says we fall short of that. 
But we can be, as he says in verse 24, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can be saved by faith in Christ. So we fall short of God's glory, but we can be saved when we receive the gift of his righteousness. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should what? Should what? Go ahead. Should boast. He gets the glory, doesn't he? Because of the gift, the free gift of salvation. And now look at chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. Starting in verse 33. Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? who is first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Do you hear it? Only God could have designed the plan of salvation. He's just, just finished describing. He just reached the end of the section where he's laying out the truths of the gospel. At the very end, he says there's only one who could have done this. He is the God who is all wise, and he deserves, at the end of verse 36, the glory forever. As one writer says, only an infinitely wise mind, only an infinitely wise mind could have designed and accomplished such a plan of redemption. God designed it, and he accomplished it. He completed it, and he offers it. He provides it. He says, here, here it is. It's all done. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. Glorifying God includes what we say, right? Thank you, Lord. I praise God. God did this for me. I didn't do it myself. He saved me. I give him the glory. We can verbalize that. Glorifying God also includes how we sing. Do we sing thoughtlessly? Do we sing without even engaging with the words and the ideas of praising him for being our redeemer? Glorifying God includes how we sing with understanding and with passion from our hearts. But you know something? Glorifying God isn't just words, is it? Glorifying God also includes how you and I live. I want to tell you a little story. It's about a king. He was not a good king. In fact, he was a pretty wicked king. Not a king from the Bible. He lived in the 1600s in England. His name was King Charles II. And this king was known for being wicked. He was known for being immoral. He was a sexually immoral man. That's the kind of person that he was. He, he was having a new castle built, as kings will, right? He was having a new castle constructed, and, and, and he wanted to go visit the, the, the building as it was under construction. And he had a mistress, and he wanted her to go along, but he didn't want to make a public spectacle of his adultery. And so, so I don't know why, but for some reason he messaged a nearby pastor and said, hey, I'd like for my mistress to stay with you while I'm there. This pastor's name was Thomas 
Ken, K-E-N. He was a godly man. He could not in good conscience agree to, to have the king's mistress stay with him. Now, now, his friends were concerned for him, Thomas's friends, and they reminded him, hey, you could lose your head over this, right? And here was his response. Not for the king's kingdom. In other words, even if he said, I'll give you everything that belongs to me, not for the king's kingdom will I do this horrible thing. Now, Thomas Ken was not leaving anything to chance. He scheduled some repairs on his house during the, the time that the king would be visiting and, and hired a builder, and, and the repairs included removing the roof from the house during the time the king would be visiting. So no guests would be able to stay there. He would not be forced into a difficult situation. So he did risk his life. He didn't lose his head. In fact, he was later appointed chaplain to the king. One day he was preaching and the king was present. I'm not sure if he chose the text when he realized the king was there or chose the text knowing the king was going to be there or just that's where he was in his preaching. But he was preaching on John the Baptist's warning to King Herod for taking his brother's wife. And while he was preaching, he looked directly at King Charles and said, So you, O king, are also guilty of violating God's law by openly flaunting your immorality before the British people. Again, some helpful friends reminded him, hey, John the Baptist's boldness literally cost him his head. You remember that, right? And here was Ken's response. And I would gladly lose mine if it would bring the king to his senses. I'm telling you this story because Thomas Ken had a high view of God. He glorified God. And his view of God was not just something that he verbalized, but he lived in a way that showed that he cared about the glory of God. It motivated him to be bold in his witness, to be be faithful in his service, and even willing to pay the ultimate price for doing what was right. You see, glorifying God is not only about what you say, but also about how you live, isn't it? And this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, these words at the end of, of Romans 16 that we've been looking at, could be called a doxology. The, the, the end of the, of, of, the, of the passage, verse 27, to God alone be glory. The word glory in the original language is the word doxa. And it's from that that we get the term doxology. A doxology is, is words, worshipful words that glorify God, sometimes arranged in a formal way, and sometimes it's recited or sometimes we would sing a doxology, right? Thomas Ken wrote a doxology. He composed three hymns for students in Winchester College, which was connected to his ministry when he was a pastor. He wrote three hymns to sing at their devotions, and these hymns were called Morning, Noon, and Midnight. And the closing stanza is the same 
for each one. And I want to show it to you. Take a hymnal and look at hymn number 815. And you might already be guessing as to what this is. Number 815 in your hymn book. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And you see the, the composer's name, the writer's name down underneath that. You see his name there, Thomas Ken. That's our guy. So he, he profoundly and beautifully articulated praise and glory to God through those devotional hymns and through this refrain that was sung at the end of each one. But, but he didn't just talk about it or sing it, did he? he? He demonstrated it in how he lived. And that's how we should think too, isn't it? The gospel has impacted you. It's available to all. And God stands alone as the only one who could design such a plan. So the call is for us to give glory to God for the gospel by what you say and how you sing and to reflect the glory of God in the gospel by the way that you live. So now we need to sing it, right? Abigail's going to play for us. Let's sing it through twice. And uh, the second time through, we'll add the amen. 